0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. We're back in our series this morning in 2 Corinthians. We're journeying through the book of 2 Corinthians over the course of the year. And I want to start off this morning with a video clip to uh, set up the topic that we're talking about this morning. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, so uh, you can be opening up your Bible or opening up your Bible app to 2 Corinthians 5. And this is a passage in which Paul, who's writing this letter, talks all about heaven and life after death and the future resurrection and Judgment Day. And so to kind of crack open those themes, I'm going to play a clip from the movie R.I.P.D., came out a couple of years ago, uh, starring Ryan Reynolds, who plays a dirty cop who dies. And then this scene in the movie is what takes place straight after he dies. Okay, so let's watch the screen. (laughs) So there's one Hollywood take on the afterlife. (laughs) and Actually, what's interesting about that movie is that uh, it actually includes the theme of Judgment Day. Uh, Most of the time, I mean, there's plenty of Hollywood movies that includes something about the afterlife, some theme of the afterlife, but most of the time they skip over judgment and go straight to the world beyond whatever that world may be, Uh, but that actually includes judgment day, final judgment, as part of the storyline of the movie. Obviously that's complete fiction, but movies like that that come out of Hollywood, they tap into these deep human questions that people have asked and answered in various ways as long as human beings have walked the face of the earth, questions about what happens after death. Is there any kind of post-mortem existence? Is there any kind of realm beyond the grave? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? What are these worlds like? Are there even different worlds? What am I going to be like? What will you be like? What will God be like if there even is a God? And we ask these questions, and down through human history, almost every culture, almost, well, certainly every religious worldview has provided some kind of theory, some kind of view of what the afterlife is all about. Uh, and, and, and you could just rattle off so many of them, from the Mormon idea of the celestial kingdom to the, the Viking idea of Valhalla, the, the final paradise, uh, the Hindu and Buddhist idea of reincarnation, the Islamic idea of jhana, the paradise, and of course the Christian idea of heaven and hell. There's so many different views and so many different theories, including the secular view that there's absolutely nothing after this life when your body ceases to function. And then you add to that all of the popular imaginations of the afterlife that Hollywood keeps on churning out. And there's just a plethora of different views on this stuff. And that is why it is all the more important that as Christians, we know what we believe about this. That we know what we believe about what happens to a person after death and what God's plans are for the future of the world and of humanity. And that we know and that we're clear about what the Bible says. Because sometimes I think Christians can be the most fuzzy on this. Sometimes we're just not quite sure. We sort of know there's this place called heaven. Don't really know too much more than that. And we're almost a bit timid to talk about it. But the reality is the Bible does talk about it a lot. And the Bible doesn't give us all the answers. And it certainly doesn't give us crystal clarity on exactly what is going to happen. But it gives us enough. It gives us some pretty solid ground on which to stand and on which to be able to articulate the basis of our hope as Christians, and we need to be able to do that in a world that is increasingly without hope, right? So this passage that we're looking at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is part of the picture of what the Bible talks about the afterlife and the future. It's not the whole picture. And I'll put this together with a couple of other scriptures as we go along. Paul doesn't talk about every issue in this realm, but he does hit three big issues. And we're just going to walk through Paul's argument or Paul's thinking in this passage and follow him as he deals with these issues around life after death in this chapter. So the first issue that he hits in this this passage, and we're only looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 5 today, the first issue that he deals with is our future resurrection bodies. So let me read the first... Uh, Five verses, 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So here Paul's working with a couple of images, a couple of metaphors. Uh, Firstly, he talks about the idea of an earthly tent. In verse 1 there, he says, We know that if our earthly tent is destroyed, when he talks about the earthly tent, he's just talking about our physical body in the present life. He's using this analogy that our body in the present life is a bit like a tent, which means living in the present life is a bit like going camping. Who's been camping? Who's had a tent that's leaked or failed in some way at some point? Yeah, camping's great until that happens, right? And then it's not so fun. I remember once um, seeing my sister and her family come back from a camping trip up north and we just happened to be there when the family arrived back and I gave them a hand bringing some stuff in from the car, opened up their boot, and everything was just a sodden mess. Just clothes absolutely soaked, camping gear soaked, tent soaked. They'd just been completely rained out and just had to pack up in the rain. Everything was already wet. There's couldn't be bothered packing. Just chucked stuff in the car, drove back to Auckland. It was a mess. Camping's not a whole lot of fun when it's like that. And Paul is saying our bodies in the present, these physical bodies, they are a bit like flimsy tents. That we have, I mean, our bodies are incredible things. Our bodies are incredibly complex. They're incredibly well designed. The Bible tells us we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but at the same time, our bodies are also incredibly vulnerable. They break, they get old, they get sick, they die. And it happens right from the beginning of life. You have expectant parents who discover that there's something about their child that is gonna mean that child has a radically altered life. The three words that no expectant parent ever wants to hear, incompatible with life. Those awful words, the smallest abnormality of a chromosome can mean that a child either cannot survive in this world at all or survives a very short amount of time or lives with profound disability right from the beginning. And then as we journey through life, we get sick, we get injured, sometimes we recover from those, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we then carry certain illnesses or conditions or, or injuries right through the rest of our lives. We carry them forward. And then we get old and our bodies start getting stiff and they decay and they get sore and they get less mobile. And eventually this earthly tent that we all have is destroyed. One way or another, this tent collapses and our body goes back into the ground, either burial or cremation. That's the body. But the contrast that Paul is drawing here is between the present tent that we have and then what he describes as this eternal house in heaven. He says, we know that if this body is destroyed, we have an eternal house in the heavens. Now, when he talks about the house, eternal house in heaven in verse 1, he's not talking about the place where we go when we die. He's not talking about your heavenly house, your mansion that you're going to live in. He's talking about your resurrection body. He's using that image to talk about the body that we will have. When Jesus returns, those who belong to Jesus, those who are Christians, will receive a renewed and resurrected body. And that is the body that will be perfectly fitted for the new heavens and the new earth that we will inhabit with God forever. And Paul's saying that body is a little bit like a house. It's a strange metaphor because you're probably not going to say to your husband and wife, hey, baby, you look like a house. But it is actually a positive thing that Paul is saying here. Our body will be like a house in the sense that it's not going to be the flimsy tent. It's going to be safe. It's going to be secure. It's going to be eternal. It's no longer going to be plagued by the mortality of our current bodies. It's going to last forever. It's going to be indestructible. The way Paul describes this back in 1 Corinthians, he puts a bit more language around this. And he says, the body, the present body that is sown, in other words, that dies, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. That's the resurrection body, the imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. That's our natural body in the present age. It is raised a spiritual body. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we're just going to be floating spirits. Sometimes we get this idea in our head that we're just going to be disembodied spirits in heaven. No, Paul says you're going to have a body. You are going to be embodied. It's just that that body will be governed by the Holy Spirit. You will be so full of the Spirit. We'll be so empowered by the Spirit. We will have a spiritual body. But that doesn't just mean we're going to be spirit people. We're still going to be very much embodied people. But we will just have a body that is free from everything that plagues our bodies in the present. No more disease. No more sickness. No more illness. No more flu or colds. No more serious stuff like cancer. No more injury. No more disability. No more congenital conditions that cause problems right throughout life. No more getting old. No more bodies that decay. We're all going to be the perfect age of 37 forever. Yep, that's what's going to happen. That's not actually in the Bible. I just made that up. But we will have these resurrected, perfected bodies, and they will not wear out. But here's the thing. Your body in the resurrection is going to be the same body you have now. It will be the same body you have now. That's why Paul, did you hear that language in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the body is sown, into the ground. So there's this continuity. It's like our present body is like a seed that's sown into the ground. And from the seed comes our resurrection body, the the plant or the fruit tree that's born. So there's kind of this continuity. It's not that God's just going to completely destroy your present body and then pick another one from the shelf. The body that you'll have in the new creation is going to be your body. It's going to be the same body you have now, but just perfected in the image of Jesus. You'll still be you in the new creation. You'll still be recognizable as you. You're still going to have a flesh and blood body and it's going to be the same one you've got now, just perfected. So that should be good motivation to look after your body in the present, right? Because it is the only one you're ever going to have for eternity. But it's going to be perfected one day. It's going to be completely resurrected and free from any dysfunction, any blemish, any problem inside or out. We will have these perfect bodies when Christ returns. And Paul says... Our attitude towards that day and the future resurrection bodies should be one of longing. He says in verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan. And that word groan is the same word that he used in Romans 8 when he talks about all creation is groaning for its liberation. All creation is is longing and groaning because it's under the curse of sin in the present. It's longing for redemption. It's longing for liberation. And in the midst of creation, we groan because we're longing redemption of these bodies, for these bodies to be renewed and perfected. So we're groaning with all creation. All creation is groaning along with us, longing for that day. Paul says longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Paul's kind of switching metaphors a little bit here from housing to clothing, but what he's saying with this idea of being clothed, he's actually drawing this, this beautiful Connection here, going all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, what was the first thing they became aware of? Their nakedness, right? And that in itself is not a bad thing, but it symbolized their shame before God. It symbolized their sin and their guilt before God. And so they covered themselves. And when God banished them from the garden, you know what he did before sending them away? He clothed them. Clothed them with animal skin. It represents God's desire, even there at the beginning of the story, to to provide a remedy for the shame and the guilt and the sin that human beings had gotten themselves into. And ultimately, that was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, when we accept Christ, we become clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. But Paul's saying there's a day coming. In a sense, all of us have this nakedness before God. We're all sinful people. We all carry shame and guilt and fear before God. But Paul says, when you finally receive that resurrection body, it will be like God's ultimate answer to sin and death and fear. You'll be clothed with righteousness, clothed with this perfect, perfected, immortal, indestructible body. And it will symbolize your purity, your holiness before God. That, that body will be absolutely free of anything that contaminates our present body and mind and heart and spirit. It will be utterly perfected, and it will be like the reversal of Adam and Eve in the garden. We're not going to receive these bodies so that we get banished from the garden. We're going to receive them so that we get ushered in to the garden, to the new garden, the new heavens and the new earth, where the whole earth is going to be the Garden of Eden, and we'll be ushered in with this new, these new clothings, these new bodies, perfectly suited to the new creation. So there's a beautiful connection here. Paul's going right back to the beginning of the biblical story, tapping into the story of Adam and Eve and the clothing, and then saying, it's going to be like that in the ending. When we get to the end, it'll be a new beginning, and we'll be clothed again, but fully, completely, sin and shame done away with. So in the present, when we experience the failure of our bodies, whenever, whenever something goes wrong with your body even just the the winter colds that half of you have got at the moment, when we have these things, let them stir in you a longing for the future body. Let any failure of your body in the present, any difficulty that you have with your body in the present, let that stir in you a longing. That is to be our posture towards the resurrected body, one of longing, one of hoping, one of anticipation. And the vulnerability of our bodies in the present should just increase that longing right, for that day. Because that day's coming. All right. So then Paul moves on after talking about the resurrection body. And he talks about the reality of life after death in the present. This is verse 6 through 9. What happens when we die in the present? He says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, while, so we make it our goal to please Him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So Paul is really saying, he's talking at this point about Christians, specifically about Christians here. And he's saying if you're a Christian, in the present there are only two possible states of being for you. One is that you are at home in the body and therefore you are away from the Lord. Now, you have the Holy Spirit, yes, and Jesus is always with you, but you are not in the direct presence of God right now. You are not in the throne room that we sung about it, read Scripture about. You are not in the direct presence of Jesus in heaven right now because you're still here on earth, but you're in the body. Because those who are in heaven right now don't have bodies. But Paul says the other alternative is that you're at home with the Lord and you're away from the body. And that applies to every person who has ever died, who knows Jesus. And all of the saints in the Old Testament before Jesus came, still saved by the cross because the cross is retroactive as well. So all those who follow Christ, all those who are united to Jesus in faith are now in heaven. They don't have bodies though. So when you think about loved ones that you know who are in heaven right now, they don't have bodies. They are temporarily their soul and their body are separate. Their body has been buried or it's been cremated and their soul is in heaven. So in a sense, they are still longing with us for that day of resurrection. They haven't received their resurrection body yet. So you think about family, friends you've got in heaven, you can picture them still longing, they're still longing for Jesus to return as well. They want that because they want to get their resurrection bodies and we're all going to receive that resurrection body at the same time. You are going to receive your resurrection body at exactly the same moment that Abraham receives his resurrection body. Isn't that awesome to think about? You're going to receive your resurrection body exactly the same time King David receives his resurrection body. He's still longing for it. He's still longing. That's why Revelation pictures the souls under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord? They're longing for their resurrection body. They're just souls at the moment. So when we go to heaven, there's this temporary split between soul and body. But what we do know, see the word Paul uses twice in this little section is confident. Confident. In verse 6, and then again in verse 8, he says, we are confident. And when we talk about these things, and we talk about heaven, we need to have confidence. For some reason, I don't know why this is, but in conversations with Christians, a lot of the time we seem to lack confidence when we talk about heaven. We just don't quite know maybe what we're talking about, or we don't, we're not quite clear about the reality of heaven. And so we, we end up kind of defaulting back to talking about, oh, they're just in a better place and they're watching over us and they're looking down on us and their spirit is with us and they're at the great golf course in the sky or they're making cupcakes in the clouds or whatever they're doing. We just drift into these cliches and these phrases and honestly, we just sound like non-Christians because that's what non-Christians say at funerals, to try and pull this stuff out of the air to make themselves feel better. But as Christians, we have a real hope. And if you know someone who's in heaven Say they're in heaven. Talk about heaven. It's a real place. Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father. And if you know people who are in heaven, they are alive. They are healed. They are well. They are at peace. They are receiving eternal pleasures at the right hand of the Father. They're experiencing the fullness of joy in the presence of God. Say that stuff. Be confident. Don't drift into these flaky, waffly, woolly phrases. You know We can be too woolly when it comes to talking about heaven. It's a real place. Let's have some confidence, right? Let's talk about heaven. And if you're not sure, and if you're not confident, then go to the scriptures that talk about that. I'm happy to give you a list of them and, and read them and, and and seek to understand. Of course, we don't know everything. I'm not saying we've got absolute understanding. There's a lot that I think God deliberately leaves to mystery because we, uh, you know, there's no way we could even comprehend the fullness of what heaven is, but we know heaven is real. We know it is the present reality for those who know Jesus and have died. So let's talk about it with confidence, okay? All right. Now, let me just summarize Paul's argument to this point. I've got a helpful little uh, flow chart here. Uh, If we can put that up, so here you go. How to know if you are dead or alive, according to Paul. (laughs) Do you have a body? Yes. Is it perfect? If yes, then congratulations. You've received your resurrection body. Jesus has returned. You're in the new creation. If it's not perfect, then you are still alive in the present life and you've still got your current body. If you don't have a body, then there's only two options. Are you a Christian? Yes, then you're in heaven as a soul in the present. If no, then oh dear. And that means you're in the other place called Hades. And Paul doesn't talk about that in this passage, so I'm not going to either. We've talked about it in the past and uh, it's not part of our text for this morning. But uh, I can give you a little pocket version of that if you want to keep it on you just in case you find yourself without a body one day and <laughs> not quite sure where you are. All right, moving on. Uh, last verse, and this is the more sobering topic that Paul ends this section on, in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the, word, uh, the phrase here, judgment seat, Is just one word in Greek, it's the word bema. And that was not a specifically Christian term, it was used in the the Roman world and it was actually part of the Roman legal system. Bema was a literal seat or a bench that Roman governors would sit on when they heard legal trials and weighed the evidence and passed their verdicts. And in the ancient world, justice was done quite differently to how it is in our modern societies. Most of the time in, in our modern cultures, justice is done behind closed doors. So you might, I mean, occasionally we hear, we see TV clips of courtroom trials and so on if they're high-profile cases. But most of the time, most of us are probably only going to be on the inside of a courtroom a few times in our lives. But in the ancient world, it was very different. In a city like Corinth, the most prominent building in the city on the main street was the government headquarters. And in the government headquarters was the bema, the bema seat. But it wasn't tucked away at the back of the building. It was at the front of the building. It was outside. Under under a kind of a canopy, but it was outside. And so the trials that happened before the bema were public trials. That's why if you've seen some kind of depiction of Jesus' trial before Pilate, you notice how it's always outside? That's because of the bema. That's because Pilate, the scriptures specifically say, Pilate sat on the bema. He sat on the judgment seat as he weighed the evidence against Jesus. And there's a crowd because crowds could just gather. This would be like having public trials of the high court or district court in Auckland in the middle of Aotea Square. This was how it was. So, crowds would just gather and people would heckle and they'd just stand around for a while in their lunch hour and watch a trial happening and watch the judge and watch the, the prosecution and the defense and so on. This was how justice was done. And it was part of the Roman Empire stamping their authority on the world so that everyone could see the judgment of Rome coming down. Now, this was personal for Paul because Paul had stood before the Bema. In Acts 18, there's a story of Paul in Corinth. When he first planted the church, it was several years before he wrote this letter, but when Paul first spent time in Corinth, the Jewish synagogue attenders got unhappy with him and they dragged him before the proconsul, the governor of Corinth at the time, a guy called Gallio, and Paul was forced to appear before the Bema. He was forced to stand before the Bema, Gallio sat on the Bema and weighed the evidence against Paul. Now, on that occasion, he threw the evidence out. There were not enough charges, no substance to them, and so Paul was free to go. But that must have made an impression on Paul, right? I mean, that, exp- that would have been intense. If that had gone badly for Paul, that could have been the end of his life. I think that experience probably sat with Paul. And so now when Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he starts talking about the final judgment, he uses this image of the bema, this image of the judgment seat. And he says, one day, every one of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of the universe, before the bema and the judge of all things. Not just some lowly little Roman official, but the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ. And he is the judge, by the way, Jesus. He's received all authority from the Father to judge. So he will be the one before whom we stand one day. Paul says, every one of us, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. We will all stand before the bema. We will all stand before the great judgment seat of Christ. And here's what's a little bit disturbing about this verse. We will all receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. Now that should make you a bit uncomfortable because that sounds like we're going to be judged according to our works. And guess what? We are. This is not the first time Paul's talked about it and it wouldn't be the last. In the scriptures, there is this consistent idea that there will be in the end a judgment according to our works, that we will stand before Christ and we will give an account of our lives, of the deeds we have done. There will be a judgment according to works. But this is where we can't stop just with this passage. This is part of the picture, but only part. And you have to go all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 20, to see how this all comes together. Now, we've dealt with that passage before. I won't linger on it. But in Revelation 20, you have this picture here that there will, in fact, be two judgments, almost simultaneous. That in the first instance, we'll stand before Christ and we will give an account for our lives. And He will weigh the evidence of our lives for deeds done. And how do you think that's going to go? Pretty badly for every one of us, right? And if you think it's going to go well, then that's just adding pride to the list of things that are going to be read out against you. It's not going to go well for any of us. We are all going to one day hear Christ pronounce over our lives, bring the gavel down, so to speak, and say, guilty. And we're going to hear that, and we're going to feel the weight of that. We're going to feel the weight of our own sinfulness before a holy God. But then, beautiful picture in Revelation 20, then, Jesus opens the book of life and the book of life contains the names of those who are united to Christ through faith not the good people, not the holy people, not the ones who went to church on Queen's birthday weekend not the, you know, not the moral people but the ones who have accepted Christ's sacrifice for their sins and are united to him through faith only through the shed blood of Christ those are the names in the book of life Jesus will read out those names and even though you will have heard guilty pronounced over your life, if your name is then in the book of life, you'll hear Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. You'll say, I'm not good, I'm not faithful. Christ will say, but I am and I was good and faithful on your behalf. So come and enter into the joy of your eternal reward and he'll usher us into the kingdom of heaven, usher us into the new creation. Two judgments, you see, the judgment of works and the judgment of faith. And what Paul's talking about here is just the judgment of works. So don't don't get worried by that. That's just that it's one side of the coin and it needs to be put together with other scriptures to see the full picture. There's a judgment of works and then there's ultimately the judgment of faith according to the grace of Christ. Now you could, in all fairness, ask the question, why does God bother with the judgment of works for Christians if we're ultimately going to be saved by grace? Um, Why bother with the judgment of works? And the answer is, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why that is. The only thing I can think is that maybe at the end there, as we stand before Jesus, God wants to remind us one last time that it is only by His grace that you are saved. That He wants us to feel the weight of our sin. And lest there's any chance that you show up on that day with any thought that you've contributed anything to your salvation, lest you get it in your head that you are adding anything, making yourself a little bit more worthy, that you've done something that's just made you a little bit more deserving, a little bit more able to get through the judgment unscathed, God's going to put that thought to death by bringing the gavel down and letting you hear that pronouncement guilty so that you recognize the depravity of your own sinfulness before Him. And having recognized that how much sweeter will it be to hear your name read out of the book of life? The gratitude that we will then feel, the relief that we're going to feel when we hear our name read out is going to be magnified by the fact we will have just heard the word guilty. And we will realize we are only escaping the eternity of hell by the sheer mercy and pleasure of God. And I think perhaps God just wants to keep that forefront in our mind right at the end. It's only by grace that you and I are saved in the present. And it's only by grace that we will pass through the judgment in the end. So when you think about your resurrection body, our attitude should be one of longing, groaning even, hoping, longing for the day. And let the frailty of your body in the present point your heart towards the hope and the glory of your future resurrection body. Our attitude in the present towards heaven should be one of confidence, knowing what we believe, being able to speak about what we believe at the funerals and in conversations about others who know the Lord who have passed away. Let's have confidence. And our attitude towards the future judgment should be one of a reverent fear of God, recognizing His holiness, but also a deep, deep gratitude for the grace of God for the shed blood of Christ on our behalf, that means we will be acquitted at the final judgment. And more than acquitted, freed and saved and led into an eternity with Father, Son, and Spirit and the new heavens and the new earth. Bring on that day, hey? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have of heaven after this life is over, of our resurrection bodies when you return, of the new heavens and the new earth that we'll inhabit with you when you renew all things. God, we thank you. And we pray that in our lives, God, especially when things are hard and especially when we feel the weakness of our bodies in the present, the weakness of our minds, the weakness of our flesh, God, we pray that you would stir our hearts with a fresh hope for that day, that the reality of the new creation, the reality of resurrection, would be an anchor for our soul in the present. And we thank you that all of this is because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shore Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.